Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. The best athletes don't just play the game, they change it. When it comes to investing, GameBridge is doing the same. Their online platform does things differently because it's designed to put you in charge of growing your own savings. It's intuitive, it's easy, and best of all, it's on your terms. No wonder GameBridge has earned the trust of 40% repeat customers. It's a better way to invest because it's investing your way. Get started today with as little as $1,000 at GameBridge.io. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. Winter is coming. Heavy rain, sleet, snow, and ice. Are your tires up for the challenge? Tread confidently in winter's worst with a set of new tires from Tire Rack. They sell only the best, like the full line of Michelin tires. Go to TireRack.com sports. Tell them what you drive. Your tires will ship fast and free to you or one of over 10,000 recommended installers. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. Why not take less than your max contract? I know everybody out there has been talking about who has the salary cap room to go sign LeBron James and that he's going to be worth $38 million a year or whatever the heck, $40 million, whatever the max contract he can sign is. But I mean this. Doesn't LeBron James have enough money right now? Hasn't he, over the course of his career and all of his endorsement money, made enough money where now, as he approaches 34 years old, that the number one driving force behind his decision-making should not be who can pay him the max salary? Other than ego. Which, by the way, why does LeBron James need his ego stroked at this point? He knows he's the best player in the world. How many more years is that going to be the case? I don't know. I don't think there's more than two or three more years where he's going to be able to perform at a truly elite level. Why not go and take less money than you're worth and go to a team that you can stack to be able to compete with the Golden State Warriors for the title? I don't know why no one else is discussing this. Furthermore, if you consider yourself, as LeBron James does, to be the best businessman, sometimes that means investing in yourself for the long range as opposed to taking the money that's available in front of you right now. If you believe you're truly good at what you do, you shouldn't go out and take the lowball offer that seems like it makes sense just because it's the most available money in the meantime. By that, I mean this. Why not find an owner that you can have a great private relationship with. And if you're an owner 
why not tell LeBron James, hey, my goal is to win a championship. How about you take $17 million, free up the cap space to bring in another great player, and as a result, when your career is over, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, nod, nod, I will give you the opportunity to buy into this franchise and work on becoming an owner, learn what that process is like at a reduced rate so that one day when you find a franchise you want to try to buy, you have the ability to sell the stake that you have here back to me for more money than I sold it to you. I've been on this for a little while. Again, if I were the owner of an NBA franchise, I would sit down with LeBron James. I would say, okay, you're worth $40 million a year, whatever the dollar figure is going to be on his yearly contract. If you pay play this next several years for me for $15 million a year, I'll sign you into a $45 million contract, and then I will give you a reduced buy-in to buy a substantial share of my company for $75 million. I'll give you a higher share than you would ever have been able to do and I'll make that money back up to you after you retire. How does anybody catch this? Every NBA franchise's value is a work of art in some way. In other words, you don't know exactly what it's going to be worth until it goes on the market. So if you had 10% of your NBA franchise that you were willing to sell to LeBron James, how is, once he's retired the fact that you are giving him a lower than market rate for that 10% going to actually be stopped by anybody in the NBA. I think this potentially is the way that a smart businessman would make a decision about where he goes next. Don't focus on who can pay you the max contract. Focus on who is willing to set you up right now with a team that's good enough to win a championship and surround you with as much talent as possible while simultaneously setting the table for your future. Now, maybe partly that's what he's going to do if he's going to join the Lakers. Maybe that's LeBron James saying, you know what, I'm trying to build for the end of my career. Here's the problem for LeBron James. As soon as he's not good at basketball, nobody's really going to care about him anymore. And I think that's what LeBron James, who desperately needs to be loved, is most afraid of. Who is the best, most significant NBA athlete in terms of how much attention he gets and how much of a difference he makes on the national scale who has been retired and still maintained his relevance? The only person I can really think of is Charles Barkley. And that's because he's so incredibly good at television on Inside the NBA. And you could say Kenny Smith, and you could say Shaquille O'Neal, but really it's Barkley, because he's on that show. As much as LeBron James uh, whines about it, I think he loves all the attention that he gets, particularly on social media, particularly with every quote that he gives, every every glance that's analyzed by him. We look at the way the cameras caught him at the end of game one. I think LeBron wants to maintain his significance. I think that's why he has made the decision to get political. I think LeBron desperately wants to maintain his his relevance and his crew has convinced him, oh, you need to be like Muhammad Ali. Even though Muhammad Ali was in the middle of the Vietnam War and was actually saying things that were controversial, LeBron James hasn't said anything controversial or particularly perceptive. 
But I think this is his desperate gambit to remain relevant after his career is over. I don't really think it's going to work because I don't think there is an easy person to point to and say, oh, this guy continued to captivate the American sporting public after his career as a basketball player was over. It may be that Charles Barkley is the most relevant former pro athlete in all of America, period. But I don't think there's a route right now, if I'm advising LeBron James, to maintain a high level of relevance. I do think he can end up owning a basketball team like Michael Jordan. I do think he can end up being a successful executive in the world of business. But I don't understand why everybody is focusing on him having to make a max contract now. The best advice I could give LeBron James is take less money, go to another team, and try to win a couple of more championships. Remember, LeBron, if you think about his career, interestingly, he's won three titles. He's going to be three and six in the NBA Finals when this sweep or this five-game loss is over. Think about LeBron's three titles. He's been really fortunate that he's won both the game sevens he's played in. If Ray Allen doesn't hit that big shot against the Spurs and the Heat lose that series, and if any number of plays don't go differently in that 3-1 series comeback against the Golden State Warriors, the Cavs don't win that series either. And we're probably talking about LeBron James being 1-8 and eight in NBA Finals. Remember, it's not as if he has a lost series that his team has been close to winning. All six of the series that he has lost have ended in six games or less. And several of them have ended in five. So LeBron James has won the two series that went to game seven. That's to his credit. But he's a lot closer to being one and eight in the NBA Finals than he is to being five and four or anything close to having a winning record. So why isn't anybody saying to him, hey, Let's figure out a way for you to win a couple of more titles, take less money, and do it. And I say this again, money is not the end goal once you become really wealthy. I'm not really wealthy, but I can make decisions now where I don't have to just take the most money. I can do things that look appealing to me or challenging to me. Now, when you don't have very much money, I understand that, oh, I'm going to go take whatever job pays me the most money. But as you age, and LeBron's going to be 34 this year, you'll learn something. Sometimes it makes more sense to take less money and bet on your future. Sometimes you may well leave a lot of money on the table just because you're not happy with the situation that you're in. I was reading an article yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, the guys who founded WhatsApp. Uh, that was bought by Facebook, they're so unhappy with their relationship in Facebook that one of them walked away leaving $900 million on the table. The other one walked away leaving $600 million on the table. To you or me listening right now, that sounds insane. But if you're already a billionaire, what is making 10% more money worth in terms of your life goals? Is the difference in a WhatsApp founder's life going to be substantially changed if he's worth $9 billion as opposed to if he's worth $10 billion? 
at this point in time, LeBron James has to be worth seven or $800 million. He may be worth a billion dollars. Is an extra $100 million, which he may be able to reclaim in a smart financial transaction, buying into an NBA team, really worth giving yourself a lower chance to win a championship at this point? Uh, let's bring in John Morosi. I guarantee you John Morosi's feeling better. Um, you got the NHL going on tonight. The NBA is basically over. If people are deciding, you know what, I'm desperate for sports, I'm going to pay attention now to the NHL. Stanley Cup final, uh, Vegas Golden Knights are hosting the Washington Capitals. What should they know about tonight and potentially game six because Vegas is favored to win this one? Do you think the Caps get it done tonight or do you think we go back to Washington? Well, good morning, Clay. I think that we will see a game six uh, on Sunday evening. I, I believe Vegas wins this game. Uh, of course, they've lost three straight after winning game one. Um, hockey is such a unique game, Clay, and, and the way this series has played out really illustrates that. Uh, game two, you had the amazing save by Braden Holby on Alex Tuck in the waning moments. Uh, where if Tuck scores that goal, who knows, maybe Vegas goes on to win an overtime after tying the score there. And then in Game 4, uh, which ended up being a lopsided final score of 6-2 in favor of Washington, uh, there was the early play on which James Neal uh, hit the post when it looked like he had an open net to shoot at. Obviously, things were moving pretty quick at the moment, so it's, it's not as though it's his fault. But the point is that if, if he scores there, it may change the entire momentum of that hockey game uh, instead of the 6-2 win uh, for Washington. So uh, it's been a series that, even though it's 3-1 in favor of the Capitals, uh, by some analytical metrics, uh, Vegas has actually had the better of the play over the entirety of the series. But uh, Washington has the lead in the only spot that matters, which is the scoreboard. And I think tonight, what, what tonight signifies for me, Clay, is, is the possibility of one of the all-time great players in the history of the National Hockey League, Axel Vechkin, uh, putting his hands in the Stanley Cup for the very first time. It, it could happen tonight, which, if it does, that's a certifiable moment because uh, all the times that he came up short against Sidney Crosby and the Penguins in the playoffs, uh, that can all end tonight. Uh, any question lingering about his overall greatness, again, that would end tonight. So uh, if you think about the, the sports world and all, all the stories of of vindication that we see after all-time great players finally win the big one. Well, that that can happen in uh, in the National Hockey League this evening if uh, if Alex Ovechkin and the Capitals win the Stanley Cup. When you look at this matchup, how much nervousness do the Washington Capitals feel if they lose tonight and then have to go back knowing that if they lose that one, they're going back on the road for Game 7? Now, I know they won Game 7 on the road against Tampa Bay, if I'm not mistaken. I know they came back from an 0-2 series deficit early in the Stanley Cup playoffs against the Columbus Blue Jackets. But given the history of the Caps, this actually becomes a kind of nerve-wracking game in some way. Because tonight, I think the Caps are kind of playing with house money. Because if they lose, they're thinking, oh, we're still up 3-2. We went on the road. We lost. We got a game back at home. But I think as Game 6 got closer on Sunday night, they would start to get a little bit apprehensive, particularly if they didn't come out early and get up and uh, and they were realizing that they might have to worry about giving up this 3-1 series lead and go back for Game 7. So I kind of think this game tonight is, uh, is a fascinating one to pay attention to. Totally agree, Clay. That's a great point on your part about the psychology here. Uh, this Capitals team has obviously been different 
from their predecessors in in the way they've handled the the big pressure moments and their ability to come back from a 3-2 deficit in the last series and, and defeat the Tampa Bay Lightning in the Eastern Conference Final. So they've they've proven a lot to us uh, just in recent weeks here. But it's a very fair point that you make, and, and psychologically it's going to be a really interesting evening for Washington. I think one thing that, that, I'll, uh, that I'll tell you, Clay, that, that I would compare between hockey and, and, and baseball and having covered the, the playoffs in both is that in baseball – you never hear coaches or players talk about effort level, especially in the playoffs. It's just not the way that sport operates. Uh, because baseball, of course, is unique. It's it's really the one of our major sports that you, you know, that you do not play better by playing harder, by trying harder. Sometimes that actually is counterproductive. It's similar to golf in that way, I think, maybe in, in some respects. So in hockey, though, you hear all the time, if, if I go into the losing dressing room, or talk to the losing coach in the playoffs, they will frequently say, well, we weren't desperate enough tonight. They they wanted it more. And so that that psychology, Clay, is not just a talking point or something that's fun for us to debate here uh, on the morning radio show. It's, it's actually a, a very tangible quality to the way this game is played tonight. If, if Washington plays either tentative or nervous or overconfident and, and does not – stick to its system, then they could lose his hockey game tonight, and then all of a sudden the, the, the momentum in the series has changed in, in favor of a team that's very comfortable being the underdog and, in fact, has succeeded all year as the underdog. Whereas I, I think if, if they come out tonight and if they feel like they're the more desperate team, with, of course, three days off since the last game, they've got plenty of rest. Uh, there's, this is one of those games, Clay, that could go either way. It would not surprise me at all if Vegas comes out and, and puts together their best game of the series. It also wouldn't surprise me if, if Washington scores first, if all of a sudden they get confident and they smell it and, and they are on the verge of the cup and if they finish it off this evening. So I still think, though, it's more likely Vegas wins this game, but uh, pay very close attention to the way both teams come out, their energy level, and, and the, also the way they stay within their system or not uh, here early in Game 5. We're talking to John Morosi, J-O-N-M-O-R-O-S-I. You can find him on Twitter. Let's go to the end Major League Baseball and get a couple of hits here because this is also your other uh, area of expertise, and you typically join us in this hour on Thursday to talk about baseball. NL West, uh, a lot of talk early in the year. Oh, the Dodgers are not playing very well. They're in trouble. you got the Giants now making a little bit of a, uh, a noise. It's wide open. Everybody's within four and a half point, uh, four and a half games of the lead. It seems to be right now by far the most competitive division in baseball. What do you think is going to happen as we come down the final 100 games? Of, there's still 100 games left, so the answer is a lot can happen. <laughs> but 60 games in, it's a lot different than it was 30 games in when it seemed like a lot of people wanted to write off the Dodgers in particular. Who's going to end up winning this division? What's the play down the stretch? Great question, Clay. I would still say the Dodgers have the edge. Uh, the Dodgers, as we begin play here today, two games back of the D-backs and the Rockies, who are tied uh, this weekend, and actually they're uh, they're playing uh, in Denver this weekend, so uh, a, a regionally televised game there on Fox on Saturday. So that's well timed that there's a uh, a series between those two teams. But I, I think that the Dodgers have the better, the best run differential of of all the teams in the division, and that can kind of tell you a little bit about the overall strength. I think sometimes run differential, when it is a little bit out of step with with the way a team's record looks, it could be a little bit of a hint. 
about where that particular division is is trending or where that team is trending. So the Dodgers having the best run differential in the division tells me a lot. They've played better of late, seven and three in their last ten games that they did lose last night there in Pittsburgh. So I, I'm still a little bit worried about the, the, the back part of their rotation, especially as long as Clayton Kershaw is out. But that being said, you're worried about everybody's back end of the rotation, especially in that division um, where, where the Giants are still waiting on the returns of, of, of Jeff Samarja and Johnny Cueto. Uh, the Diamondbacks are, are waiting on Robbie Ray, and, and there's, their rotation has been a little bit up and down, although a little, a little bit better over the last 10 games. So th- there are real concerns for every team that's involved in this race. I just think that the Dodgers probably have the most natural depth and they've just played better since Justin Turner's come back. So I think that with the existing cast, I think the advantage goes to the Dodgers. But I'm with you, Clay, in saying this is probably going to be the most competitive division race in baseball here in the second half of the season. How good is Max Scherzer playing right now? He's 10-1, and has a sub-2 ERA, and he just finished. And I wasn't even familiar with this phrase, an immaculate inning, which means that I believe he basically – got everybody done, and uh, you, you get nine, strike out three players on nine pitches. Basically, Correct. you are flawless as a pitcher. Uh, how good has he been, and what does he look like going forward in terms of his impact, particularly if you get in the playoffs and you start thinking, okay, this guy could get me two wins. If he's playing like this, you have to feel really good about your odds of being able to advance, even though I know national fans, they haven't exactly been able to do it so far. Right, a very good point. And, and to me, Clay, Max Scherzer is an all-time great. I, I think we should all take a step back and pause and, and really reflect on what he's doing right now because at the moment, you look at where his numbers are, he's leading the majors in strikeouts once again, 10-1, uh, and one, I believe, at last, at last check is his record. Um, he is on his way to what I believe is going to be his fourth career Cy Young. So that will break the tie that he's currently got right now with the likes of Pedro Martinez, Sandy Koufax, and Clayton Kershaw. Uh, I believe only four or five other pitchers in the history of the game, including Roger Clemens, including Steve Carlton, Randy Johnson, have won more than four or, four or more Cy Youngs. So if he wins the Cy Young this year, and I think probably even if he doesn't, he's going to the Hall of Fame. And it's important for us to realize uh, that, that uh, as I pointed out yesterday, eight years ago, he was he had just been sent to the minor leagues by the Tigers with an ERA above seven to get his mechanics figured out. So it's a good reminder that even the all-time greats stumble, and, and Max stumbled eight years ago and really didn't know what the fix was until he, he sort of discovered it uh, in, in, the, in the bullpen and really refined his mechanics that way. He, he is an all-time great because he never stops wanting to tinker with the way that he is approaching the game, working on a new pitch. And I think sometimes, Clay, we see it in all sports. Players get comfortable a little bit in whatever, whatever methodology they have that brings them to the, to the success they've enjoyed, such as if you're a, if you're a perennial all-star, you know, if you've made a few all-star teams, and you think that maybe you could go to the next level if you introduce a new pitch or change your arm angle a little bit, but you're afraid to try because you, you, you don't want to lose the success that you've had already. You don't want to mentally get to a different spot. All of a sudden, oh, my gosh, where's my arm slot? Now I'm all out of whack, and, and I probably should have just been content with what I had already. Max has never made that decision. He has always kept trying to innovate, 
and uh, he, he has such profound trust in himself that allows him to innovate and, and keep trying to experiment in a way that is really refreshing and, and inspiring. So I think Max, fantastic guy. Uh, I've always enjoyed my conversation with him over the years. Just a great person from a great family. So thrilled for him. And, again, we are watching an all-time great Max Scherzer. And, by the way, Clay, you and I are going to get a chance to, to, uh, to watch – uh, a player who unifies our, our favorite sports in the fall yes. because Kyler Murray signing with Oakland, but of course he can still stay as an amateur in football. So the plan for Kyler Murray is going to sign with the A's, but he's going to try to play quarterback for the Sooners there, even though he's going to play some minor league baseball, we think, this summer, of course, as he tries to succeed Baker Mayfield as, the, uh, as both the Sooners quarterback and the Heisman Trophy winner this fall in Norman. What would you tell your son as the final question? You've got kids. Uh, if you had a son who was as gifted of an athlete as Kyler Murray is, and like you said, we, we love college football. Obviously, both of us, you're in Ann Arbor, big Michigan guy. I, I love my wife's a Michigan grad. I love basically everything about college football. But it's also dangerous. And uh, there is the possibility, certainly, that you could be injured on any play, maybe even a career-ending injury. Uh, certainly, there are guys who have been unfortunate in that respect. Kyler Murray... Number nine, I think, overall pick, $5 million guaranteed. Oakland A's coming out and making a big play for him. What would you tell your son if he came to you and said, I've got this money out here. I also love college football. How do you balance the decision-making here between passion and money? Well, Clay, it's a great question. I think this, if a young man has advanced as far as Kyler Murray has, in other words, this is not the original decision of, when your son is 10, 11, 12, do you play football or not? Uh, once he's gotten to this point and he's, he's spent the, the time there on, on campus, of course, he originally began a Texas A&M transfer there to, to Oklahoma. Um, if you feel that you owe it to your teammates and owe it to yourself to complete the journey and, and be accountable as an athlete to, to, to finish off your, your collegiate career and, and, and seize upon that opportunity, uh, I, I think as long as you are obviously now getting your, your guaranteed money in baseball. Um, and then you can look into insurance, uh, obviously, for your, for your own standpoint. I, I know there have been many cases where, where players have taken out insurance policies. And frankly, the fact that you're getting the, the money via the, via the baseball signing bonus, one assumes you could apply that money towards the, towards the premiums on the insurance policy for your football career. If, 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 you have to, if you're worried about that, you can then sort of put that right into the uh, – the insurance uh, in that regard. I think as long as you're smart about it in that regard and then you're protecting and taking the, uh, the, the necessary precautions from an insurance standpoint, I have, I have no issue at all with him, with him playing. If it's his dream, if he wants to do it. Uh, I, I'm also from the school of thought, Clay, that you look at baseball. I remember uh, I, I've heard pitchers and players that didn't play in the World Baseball Classic because they're afraid of getting injured. But Madison Bumgarner was one of them, and then last year he injured himself on an ATV. So injuries can happen in any different setting, and I think if you're if you're smart about it and you're you're knowing of the risks, I, I have no issue with with uh, young people that want to continue to try to pursue a football career, or in the case of Kyler Murray, play that one last year that feels like you maybe owe it to your teammates and your institution. Do that, and then move on and play baseball after that. Good stuff as always, John Morosi. Go follow him on Twitter at J O N M O R O S I, and we will talk to you next week. My pleasure, Clay. Great time of year, my friend. I think we touched on so many different sports. I love it. Love our conversation. <laughs> have, a, have a great rest of the week. If you like somebody, it doesn't matter what they've done or what they've said. You'll justify it. If you don't like somebody, no matter what they said, you will criticize them for it.
And this is the society that we live in today. Very few people do what I think I do, which is fairly and impartially call balls and strikes and don't swing one way or the other very aggressively. Now, sometimes that means both sides of the political equation are mad at me. Sometimes it means different fan bases are mad at me. But I think what I uniquely try to do is be as straightforward and as honest with you guys every day as possible. So we've got some audio clips for you. I want to play them. I'm going to allow you guys to react. I think this likely is going to turn into a big story because of the double standard involved. Last night, Steve Harvey went on uh, to talk about the Cavs and the Golden State Warriors. Steve Harvey is the host of Family Feud. Celebrity Family Feud is coming back soon. He is a comedian, and he is also a Disney employee. Well, all of that makes sense when you put him on with Stephen A. Smith, except for one thing. Oh, yeah, he happened to call all of the Golden State Warriors gorillas, as in the animals, last night. Let's play this audio for you right now. issue with the Golden State Warriors. Anything you can do to derail them? No, you can't stop them. You got to outscore them. You can't stop all them boys. They got too many gorillas on the team. They coming to play, man. They got 800-pound gorillas on their team, so they mm. coming to play. Look, Steve. All right, so uh, Steve Harvey specifically and directly calls all of the Golden State Warriors gorillas. That would be a bad thing if, for instance, Brian Windhorst had come on and he had said, hey, what do you think about these Golden State Warriors? Can the Cavs stop them? If Brian Windhorst had said, no, they've got too many gorillas on their team, then he would be fired immediately, and it would be a major national story. Context wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter, as some people on Twitter argued, oh, well, he's saying that in a positive way. He's comparing black athletes to gorillas in a positive way. Oh, okay. Well, and I'm not even going to get into Roseanne yet. Instead, I'm going to play you this clip, which happened... Now it's been a couple of years ago, I think. You might remember a guy by the name of Doug Adler who calls games for, uh, called tennis matches or used to for ESPN until they fired him. Doug Adler's crime? During a Venus Williams tennis match, he used the phrase gorilla effect, as in gorilla warfare, not even the animal. ESPN said it didn't matter. They fired him. Listen to this phrase. Misses a first serve and Venus is all over her. And you'll see Venus move in and put the gorilla effect on. Charging. All right. Gorilla, as in gorilla warfare, you charge, you fight. She's charging the net. Gorilla tennis, using it not in the context of being a gorilla, but in the context of the way you fight a war. How in the world can you justify the two different treatments here? Now, ESPN has tried to scrub this Steve Harvey audio everywhere. They scrubbed it out of their Sports Center clips. They scrubbed it online. They are trying to track down all these different audio clips and video clips and eliminate them. But I want to bring in you guys. I also am going to open up the phone lines here momentarily. I'll take your calls to start uh, hour three. But to me here is what is at play, all right? Let me talk about Roseanne for a minute, too. I can distinguish between what Steve Harvey said here and what Roseanne tweeted because I believe Roseanne, when she called Valerie Jarrett a uh, a Planet of the Apes monkey or whatever she said, 
that was intended to be pejorative and was intended to be racist, right? It was intended to be an insult and demeaning. You can at least argue here there's a distinction in the comedic uses of two different Disney employees that Steve Harvey is intending to give a compliment to the Golden State Warriors by calling them gorillas. You can at least make that argument. I don't think it would matter if a white guy said this. If Again, I just want you to think about if Brian Windhorst had gone on and said the Cavs had no chance to stop the Golden State Warriors because they had too many gorillas out there, people would lose their mind. If Roseanne Barr had not tweeted anything at all inflammatory about gorillas and had gone on to promote ABC and they had asked her, Stephen A. Smith had asked her whether the Cavs could beat the Warriors and she had said, no, the Warriors have too many gorillas on their team, I don't think people would give the benefit of the doubt there and say, oh, she was trying to give a compliment to them. Okay, But I don't think there is any way imaginable that Disney, the same parent company that fired Doug Adler for using the phrase gorilla effect, can in any way argue that what Steve Harvey did here is not worse than what Doug Adler did. Doug Adler didn't even do anything racist. He just used a word that sounds like another word. He was a homophonic racist. He just happened to use one word, gorilla, that sounds like another word while calling a black tennis player's match because if he had said this in any white tennis player's match, nobody would have even blinked. Nobody would have even noticed. So, can anybody justify how in the world Disney, which is the parent company of both Steve Harvey and Doug Adler, can fire Doug Adler for using the phrase gorilla effect and be trying to cover up for Steve Harvey for calling all the Golden State Warriors gorillas. Jason Martin, I'll start with you. Okay, so I don't think that you can just talk about those two issues. I think that you including Roseanne's important because I think if you replace Roseanne with Steve Harvey, we would have the same discussion today. If it was Steve Harvey that had said what he said about Valerie Jarrett or what Roseanne said about Valerie Jarrett, I think you'd have another you know, different argument there. You might have people saying, well, you're going after her appearance and things like that, but you wouldn't have had the racist connotations that came from Roseanne. And the reason why Ben Sherwood at ABC said, okay, Roseanne, I don't care if you've apologized. I don't care how much you've said about what you'll do to fix this. The problem is if we don't do this, there are going to be tens of millions potentially of African-Americans who are not either going to go to Disney World or are going to protest outside of it and nothing can affect that. We can't let anything affect that part of our business. So when you look at the Doug Adler thing, we 100% agree. I would suggest, and I think you would agree, we are the show that brought this to the surface. We're the ones that played Everybody the audio else for is the first time. To touch it. Yeah, we, we played it for the first time. We brought on Doug Adler numerous times on this show. We reached out to the New York Times loser reporter that made this into you know, made this into a mountain, basically, when it was absolutely nothing. We proved, b- built on Nike's old ad campaigns for Andre Agassi, that Gorilla Effect is something that's been in the world of tennis for a long time before Doug Adler made his comment, and Doug made that point to us when he was on. The Steve Harvey thing, to me, is a little bit different. I don't think that these two things are the same just because... Look, the Virginia Tech story that we talked about, you know, six, eight weeks ago, whenever it was, when they used the N-word, right, but, but stop when they here were for, singing. But stop, stop here for a sec. 
if Brian Windhorst says the exact same thing as Steve Harvey. Yes, but he's white, Clay. It's but not. So, look, he's white. You can't get away with that if you're white. No, it's that no, simple. I'm not I, saying I, that's that's how you think it should dis- be. I'm saying that's how it is. Steve that, Harvey. That is, that is a sign. Of Steve Harvey's why clearly not racist. Country, talking about black this people is why when he uses this that term. Country is broken. This is why this country is broken right now. Because many people who are listening to us right now believe that context should matter. And that if a white person says the exact same thing as Steve Harvey, then you can't automatically assume that a white person who says that is racist and that a black person who says that is not racist. In other words, this is my argument about race in America today. We have devolved into a situation where everybody wants to define racism by words. And sometimes by words that aren't even racist but sound like they might be racist with Doug Adler. And we can't have constant different communication rules based on what your race is. Because let me say this, what if Brian Winhorst was 10% black? Is he then able to describe the Golden State Warriors as gorillas? What if he's 2% black? What if he's 42% black? What if he's 30? Whatever the percentage is, The rules of conduct and behavior in this country need to be applied evenly across the board regardless of what race you are because nobody can control what race they are. What if I get a DNA test? I'm about to get a DNA test done. If I am 2% black, do I get to come on and start saying, as a black man, I believe? You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. The best athletes don't just play the game, they change it. When it comes to investing, GameBridge is doing the same. Their online platform does things differently because it's designed to put you in charge of growing your own savings. It's intuitive, it's easy, and best of all, it's on your terms. No wonder GameBridge has earned the trust of 40% repeat customers. It's a better way to invest because it's investing your way. Get started today with as little as $1,000 at GameBridge.io. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free at 